this is a day. The whole town's a bustle. Yes. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Thursday, October 5th, 2017. I'm Jeffy Hazard. Today on The Dispatch, I talked to Justin Moss about security at live music events. You know, as an event producer, we have an obligation to create as safe of an environment as we possibly can. And Ann Derek Gallo talks to food critics who don't live in big cities. If you've got a good restaurant, it can be enough to bring people in. Here's The Dispatch. Culture. This week, gunmen opened fire on a crowd during a country music festival in Las Vegas, killing dozens of people and injuring hundreds more. The incident raised a number of familiar questions about gun control in America, but it also presents an immediate set of questions for event organizers. The music festival Austin City Limits will take place this weekend, and in light of the Las Vegas shooting, the event's organizers have offered refunds to customers who no longer feel safe attending. This is Justin. Justin Moss is the CEO of the events consulting agency, The Pineapple Group. I started in live events about 20 years ago. I started producing raves. So I continued my career in music festivals and concerts. I reached out to Justin to ask how or if the uptick in mass shootings could affect security and planning for live events in the future. It's interesting you you said you you got your start doing this uh, with raves, which I think is kind of a cool point because you know, what we're kind of talking about here is so much about safety and the ways in which you can make sure an event is safe. Um, and I guess in all of your work, what what kinds of things have you considered in terms of how can this go wrong and how can I get one step ahead of that? Yeah, I mean, and you bring up a great point. I mean, in the in the 90s, I did I did a interview for the Sun Sentinel and it was it was it was about drug use at raves. And and, you know, the idea was, you know, they're cracking down on drug use. They're cracking down on, on, you know, raves and, and, you know, the DEA and local governments were trying to do the anti-crack house law against rave producers. And so my take on that even back then was, you know, as an event producer, we have an obligation to create the most as safe of an environment as we possibly can. And, and so, you know, we want to create a safe environment and we want to make sure that our attendees or headliners are, you know, um, protected. And, and we, we, we go to all, you know, we'll do everything we possibly can to do that. But at the end of the day, you know, we can't, you know, unfortunately what happened in Vegas, it, it's just, it's almost, I'm trying to get the right words. I mean, cause I'm, I'm actually getting a little choked up, but mm-hmm. It's really, really hard to prevent something like that. I mean, we're not the Secret Service. We're not having the President of the United States there. I mean, if that was the case, we'd have sharpshooters on the on the, on buildings. Yeah, but yeah. we just we don't have that ability. Is there any is there any sense on the ground for for any of your friends or any of the people you work with that it's going to simply just become a different cost calculus throwing events like this? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, those conversations we've definitely had. I mean, I believe, you know, first and foremost, the safety of the attendees, the staff, the crew, the artists is number one. I think the bigger groups and even smaller groups that that understand the level of sophistication that we now need to have based on, you know, with security and emergency services. Yes, I think that the, the budgets are going to go up. I think now you need to start looking at you know, higher level security, you know, maybe more metal detectors, maybe, um, 
you know, eyes in the sky. Um, I'll tell you a funny story, if you will. I, I worked the Democratic National Convention in 2008 here in Denver. And um, um, obviously the level of security, you know, dealing with ex-presidents, you know, presidential candidates, it, it was just incredible. And um, I was standing there at one point and I'm on the side and, and, and all of a sudden these guys with these almost Star Trek-like devices were walking around this gentleman. I'm, you know, I'm watching, you know, Barack and his speech. And then I look down and this gentleman is signing some papers. And so when, when these, these people with these magic wands, I'll say, walked away, um, we asked him, you know, what was going on. And, and he had stated that he had pancreatic cancer, um, at some point, I don't, I don't recall. This is, this is a long time ago, obviously, and he said that those were Secret Service agents and they had detected radiation and that he was just filling out a form, you know, stating that that's what it was. And, um, you know, if you think about the the fact that they were able to detect that in 75, 80,000 people, you know, I hate to say it, but some of these big festivals, that's the type of technology that could potentially need potentially be deployed or need to be deployed. I mean, it's interesting to talk about the the concert-goer experience. You know, Austin City Limits Festival, they, they announced that they were offering refunds to people who didn't feel safe attending the festival since it was so close to the events in Las Vegas. And I wonder, you know, um, do, you, do you notice or, or is there a sense in the industry that every time these events happen, people become less l- likely to go out to concerts or go out to events like that? I have not seen a a decrease. I I think that the majority of the people have the the sediment that when they're at one of our events or, or, you know, our competitors or partners, whatever, you know, we're calling them today for the sake of this podcast, I, I think generally people feel safe and, but also I feel like people don't want to let these type of incidents or people or terrorists or whatever we're calling it, let them, you know, ruin their their way of life. Hi, Ann. Hi, Jeff. So you've written a few articles about food for The Outline, and your latest is about food writers from, quote-unquote, flyover America. Uh, What gave you the idea for this story? I love reading about food in different places, but one article in particular that I read recently, Why Is Italian Food So Amazing? by Megan McArdle in Bloomberg, got me really pissed off. Um, Just because it really, it talked about Italian food and how people outside of New York should try the great Italian food that's in New York City. And it just got me thinking about how so much food writing that I read coming from places like New York and LA kind of forget that there are other 
places in the country that also have great food and have great culture and immigrant communities bringing great food there. So I wanted to talk to people who are in places that we don't normally think of as food capitals and are writing about food there. So so who'd you talk to? One person I talked to was Stella Fong, who's a food writer from Montana. She's based in Billings. She has her own, she writes for a food blog called The Last Best Plates, and she hosts a radio show on Yellowstone Public Radio called Flavors Under the Big Sky. Love it. She talked to me about how intimate food writing in places with smaller populations can be. I feel like here, you know, when you have a smaller population, I feel like um, the advantage is, and having been here for 18 years, I somewhat have a connection to most of the people I talk to. Whether it's someone I've, you know, worked with or someone's family, child, or um, it's somebody that knows somebody. Uh, that, and that's the intimacy that you get, I think, when you move to a smaller population. So much of food writing seems to be concerned with this like invisible race that's happening where it's like who's going to be the best restaurant and who's going to beat out so-and-so. Um, and it seems like outside of that kind of New York, L.A., very food scene-oriented writing, it's very much about the communities where these restaurants are. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's exactly what Stella talked to me about. And something that I found refreshing about her approach is just like you said, it doesn't get into this exhaustive annual judgment of what the best and worst restaurants are or what the top ramen place is and stuff like that. But it really focuses on why these different restaurants are in the communities that they are in and how they function. You know, one of the things about the big cities is that you have one, a larger population and you go in and you tell the story and you leave or you're, um, and you're, you're just kind of, you're not really almost connecting with the people that you interview just because there's so much going on. There, it's like it's larger. So you don't have a chance to, to really intimately, I think, feel what people are trying to do. Another person I talked to was Kat Robinson, who is a really prolific food blogger in Arkansas and has written for multiple national outlets. And she touched upon something that Stella also talked to me about, which is that the producers of restaurant foods get more voice a lot of times in food writing from smaller areas. If you have a restaurant in a little bitty community that may not have much go for it on a tourism basis, you know, maybe there's no other reason in the world somebody might want to go there. If you've got a good restaurant, it can be enough to bring people in. So it's not just the person that's taking your order and cooking your meal and running the restaurant, per se. It's also the guy down at the convenience store that you're buying gas from, or maybe the guy at the local Dollar General because you stopped in to pick up some sort of a sundry. Or it's the uh, lodging operator who happens to have rented a room for the night to somebody that uh, was coming in just to dine at this place. She also talked to me about how food writers in places with less people just have a lot more ground to cover. They have to know what's going on in the whole state, which in Montana, there's not a lot of people, but Stella Fung has a lot of ground to cover because it's a huge state. There's one more guy from Arkansas, right? Yes, I talked to another guy from Arkansas. I think this is the most Arkansans I've ever spoken to. It was awesome. <laughs> Eric Harrison works at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and he kind of helped me realize that 
there are big food scenes popping up in all different places across the country, like not just smaller cities like Portland or like Raleigh, but even like small towns in Northwest Arkansas are seeing, are getting to enjoy the restaurant bubble. And in a place like Little Rock, you would also be surprised to discover you wouldn't think of this as a foodie city, but it really, uh, dining out here is a cottage industry. It's a form of entertainment. There's uh, uh, an enormous food blog culture here. Uh, obviously, uh, the the readership is going to be slightly different because people in New York are, uh, uh, I don't want to say they're more sophisticated, but they're certainly pickier. Over the past decade, restaurants, spending at restaurants has just grown so much. So it's really awesome to see that places in rural America are getting to benefit from that too. So the the farmers stick out to me because so much of what food writers and, and food culture sort of people talk about in big cities like New York and L.A. is the farm-to-table movement and, you know, going back to the roots of cooking and farming. And something that's really interesting is that, you know, the, the place where the voice of those farmers is heard the most isn't in the big market food scenes. It's in the small, you know, flyover states, food critics. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just, you know, highlights why it's so important for people to continue doing this work in kind of overlooked places, even though they're not always getting national attention on national outlets, because really they're preserving stories and perspectives and voices of food producers is a really rare thing. So I think that just highlights just how important it is for people to not only pay attention to local and regional food writers and local and regional journalists in general, but for those journalists just to understand how important they are, what they're doing is on a like cultural historical basis. It's the same way with the farmers because their food is getting noticed. That they can find outlets that are close by where they can sell their produce, where they can sell their um, their beef and their chicken right here in the state. It brings people to the idea of local food and it brings local food to the people that'll eat it. So I, I have to remind myself, this is all bigger than what I am. I'm just here to share the stories. And Derek Gallo is a staff writer at The Outline. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Jeff. That's it for The Dispatch. As of today, we've made it to 100 episodes. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jeffy Haza. We'll be back on Monday with more stories.